As you all know, I kind of want to challenge everyone to think a little bit about the difference between sacred and ordinary, sacred and secular music. And I don't really think that there is, that we use the word, there's seminary words or church words like liminal space. Um, and I think that that was sacred, that was sacred music. So, Good morning. Our text this morning comes from Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, I come from a Baptist background. I would bring my Bible. It would come in like a carrying case with a handle, and I have my Bible highlighted. So if you brought a Bible with you, feel free to open it up. So, once... While Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore on the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got out into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked them to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. And they begin to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Pretty close. Let's try it one more time. I'm going to read the last line. When they had left, or when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That was beautiful. So will you pray with me? Loving and wondrous God, this morning I pray that you once again will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer, open our hearts to hear this word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our understanding in the many unimaginable ways so that we may continue to serve you today now and always. Amen. Amen. Friends, I must confess I love this text. <laughs> invite Janelle back up for just a moment. <laughs> I don't know how many of you grew up singing that song, going to church camp. That Fisher's of Men song. But on the inside, I'm still a Baptist camp kid. <laughs> 
right? And I basically been your pastor for a month. And we all know what's next in the sermon. Big picture, right? Lectionary context. I see some familiar faces, people I'm glad to see back again, and some new faces this morning. So let's talk about the big picture. Some of you are going to tune out. I'm going to see it glaze over next week. I'll invite you back in a little bit. So basically, we're in this middle of a six-week series of the chronological section and selection from Luke 4 through 9, approaching the season of Lent. The last two weeks, which I kind of truncated more, I smooshed the two-week section of Luke together so we could focus on a different selection last week. It includes the launch of Jesus' public ministry. I really love that song. I love it. Thank you for that. Including Jesus' declaring the dawn of the great jubilee. That was two weeks ago. Jesus begins the call to disciples to join him, starting with Simon Peter. And Jesus and Simon know each other already, perhaps intimately. Jesus had stayed at Simon's house and even healed his mother-in-law in Luke 4. And Simon respects Jesus as a compelling teacher. Simon even calls Jesus master. But he has not yet become his disciple. Simon's call unfolds over time. I'm not going to lie, that sounds familiar. Kind of the joke in seminary for some of us is that we didn't say yes to the call. We just stopped saying no. <laughs> the story of Jesus instructs Peter to let down his nets in a particular location and thereby to discover a surprising, almost comically abundant haul of fish that basically sunk their boat. It's also in the Gospel of John, but John places the story not at the outset, but rather at the end, as the last appearance of the risen Jesus. This suggests the story was a prestigious one in the early Christian community, and that it was circulated widely in different forms. So who has it right, Luke or John? And so often in scripture, ancestors unabashedly included both versions in the biblical library. And far from undermining the Bible's credibility, this candid, inclusive approach invites us to receive each story with an open mind. Humble respect for what we don't know and a willingness to listen for the deeper and wider meanings each story suggests in its own context. So both can be true, right? Just because two stories appear in both Gospels doesn't mean that there's not truth to both of them. So next, the image of fishing for people has an ancient pedigree, but not in the way you might think. In Jeremiah, Amos, and Habakkuk, fishing for people refers not to God's salvation, but rather to God's judgment. The unrighteous and unjust are caught and pulled up by hooks and nets. What's Jesus up to here? As we'll discuss, our Jesus has a mischievous streak. He kind of messes with people with his parables. Remember the lawyer story? Finally, we'll talk about this thing Jesus is doing. Finding and calling his people his tribe, his disciples. Calling narratives in scripture typically begin with reluctance. Even prophets are reluctant. Either because the task seems impossible, 
the person is a myth, or in this case, both. And in this week, the passage is classic in the genre. So confronted with divine glory in the temple and believing himself to be unclean among unclean people, Isaiah withdraws, woe is me, I'm lost. And likewise, confronted with divine glory in Jesus and believing himself to be unclean and lowly as a sinner, Simon Peter falls at Jesus' feet. Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, in Luke. So it's repeating this thing from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So this is familiar, right? So how many of you have been called to something, either by God or by someone you deeply respect and felt much like Simon Peter? Inept, unworthy, impossibly unqualified. Not sure I should say this a mere month into my tenure here. <laughs> but every day I feel this moment, this hesitation, and yet I'm equipped to do this work. The words come in my former life, the grants come, the money comes, the time comes. God, my colleagues, my dear friend, the Holy Spirit, shows up to greet me with the tools I need, the tools we need. But they don't show up in advance, right? Which is really annoying. <laughs> I'm a planner. They show up when? Right? 
made this miracle. But it's the miracle of Jesus. It's not a miracle of Simon. It's a lack of trust and a lack of faith. But it's not a lack of faith in Jesus, right? It's like, oof. Kind of when you read that, well, this is go away from me, Jesus. It makes you go, oof. And on the contrary, I know that feeling. What Simon lacks in this story is faith in himself. In his own capacities to partner with Jesus. In his self-worth. And the very idea that God would use an ordinary person. A mere fisherman. A mere fisherman. And not a really good one at that. Out all night with nothing to show for it. To accomplish God's purpose. Moreover, to borrow from ancient Isaiah's story, Simon is convinced that he is unclean in an unclean world. And unless some seraphim, which is like angels but demons and Satan, to come purify him, he'd better withdraw in fear and tremble. For after all, what does God do with sinners with this fishing metaphor? He punishes them. So he says, go away from me, Lord. Dreading the worst, Simon collapses at Jesus' feet. And so here's where Luke turns the story. When we become fishers of men, we are not saving them in the way of the ancient text. We are saving them from shame. We are loving them. We are turning this text on its head. Like an archer drawing back a bow, Jesus lets the arrow fly. He doesn't punish Simon Peter, nor does he merely forgive him. He recruits him. He calls him to his side. The perfect reversal of expected punishment isn't the absence of condemnation. It's the presence of communion, friendship, and trust. Companionship along the way. It's saying to someone who has done you wrong, come, let's do this thing together. I trust you. Follow me. And so, sigh, breathe. Jesus, ever the student of scripture, the lover of wordplay, makes this point by trading an ancient image from the Hebrew prophets. Divine judgment is a kind of fishing for people. Sinners caught by God as by hooks and nets loved instead. This would have wrecked Simon Peter in the best possible way. Remember what's holding Simon back is he fears he is unworthy. He knows it in his bones. And so Jesus co-ops this ancient image of divine wrath and turns it inside out. You're afraid of getting caught in one of God's nets, eh? Well, I'll tell you what, from now on, you'll be the one catching sinners. And not so they'll be damned, mind you. Not any more than you're damned today. 
We're catching sinners so they're saved by our love. And don't be afraid, Simon. Take heart. The great jubilee has begun. We began in that text two weeks ago, right? When he preached in Nazareth. And when she takes back that kiss. Amazed, Simon Peter and the others left everything and followed him, that abundance that they had. And they would have had all the notoriety that came with that abundant catch. They would have been wealthy beyond measure. But even more, we can take it as another glimpse of the Jubilee, the sabbatical of sabbaticals, when all the crops were to be, to be left alone so that all the poor could eat and what they leave the wild animals may eat. Rather than cash in on their new miraculous haul, the new disciples leaving behind for those who need it most. Think of all those others along the way and the shore who worked all night and came back empty-handed. A tangible sign of the abundant realm of God. Now it literal hand. Okay, so here's that narrative. What does it mean for us? How do we best discern God's call? Well, I think that's important. It's an important directive and objective. I think it's tied up in the last thing we'll discuss. I also think God's call for individuals might be different than what our collective call or vision is for this church. And we will have time to focus on that as we transition in our ministry together. Who does God call? We should never cease to wonder at Jesus' choice of recruits. He doesn't draw from the best and the brightest. I mean, sure, those are included as well. They're not excluded. It's not just the priests or the scribes, the well-educated of the day or the political or the military leaders or the wealthy or the elite who have renounced their riches. Rather, he recruits ordinary folks near the bottom of the social hierarchy, working class, lower middle class. We might say some of them own boats or lease them. Let's be mindful of that when we make decisions as a church. Who is at this table? Whose voices are missing? When we are doing these nominations, when we sit around the table to make decisions, whose voices do we need to seek out? And finally, I would argue perhaps the most important takeaway from this particular story in Luke is the ultimate message. What is it that you ask? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> At its heart, Luke's story declares God's abundant mercy. Far from damning sinners, God's work is to save them and the whole world besides. How? In part by inviting sinners to join the movement. It's not that sin is irrelevant. It's that it's just part of the deal. It doesn't make us less. And the invitation itself can be dignified and transformative. God's call is a call toward mercy, beginning with being merciful towards ourselves, saying to ourselves, Simon or Monica or Lisa or Janelle or Ron 
Stand up. We have work to do. Indeed, Simon Peter's life is an ongoing testimony to all of us. Not only in the story of his call, but also in the story of the cross to come. Remember his brave words and his three denials? The church is no house of heroes. It is a house of mercy. Thank God, right? The message is that we are not broken people left to be shamed, but loved beyond measure. We are fishing for men, people, humans who need saved from the message that they are unlovable, unwelcomed, unqualified to do this work of kingdom building. My camp friends and I have it wrong. There were so many sinners baptized, not because they felt loved, but because they were afraid and ashamed. And is that the kind of church we want to be? It's not what Jesus came to proclaim. It's not the message I whisper to folks at the end of life. It's not, friend, you have sinned and can be forgiven. But, friend, God loves you. And there isn't a thing you can do about it. That agape word from last week, Paul meant it because Jesus lived it. Can you? Can we? Are we willing to toe the line and love our neighbors and our siblings unconditionally when they make mistakes like Simon Peter, when they make mistakes like me? Can we love them differently when they voted differently? Can we love them differently when they clear, live clear on the other side of town, as we say? I don't get that, but I'm learning. When they yell at us, when they distance themselves from us, when they spill on our carpet, can we love them anyway in spite of it? I think we can. I think that is the call. But we have to start with loving ourselves, knowing that we are redeemed and loved beyond measure. I think that this is the first call, second only to the love of God. It will take practice, and it will take a whole lot of grace and abundant mercy. But we have examples in this book. As we grow together, I'm certain we have examples here with each other. I challenge you this week to think about ways you are going to fish. How are you going to fish differently? From the same place of love and mutuality, but the ultimate kingdom building.